Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. We are very excited to present an Artemis podcast series on inspiring women's leadership and conservation. There are a number of reasons why inclusive conservation leadership is vital to the future of our hunting and fishing heritage. Our lands, waters, and wildlife face significant conservation challenges. Working towards effective solutions must draw on the creativity, expertise, and experience of conservation leadership that includes perspectives from all identities and backgrounds. This leadership series will introduce you to dedicated and inspirational women working in all aspects of conservation leadership. We aim to provide insight into their journey and the work that they do. In the end, we aim to inspire you to step into leadership yourself. Together, we will support the next chapter in conservation and help women ascend into local, state, regional, and national conservation leadership roles. everybody, welcome to episode 8 of the Artemis Leadership Series. I am your host, Marsha Brownlee, and our co-host uh, again today is Sam Patter. Hi Sam, thanks for joining us uh, again. Hey Marsha, back for number 8, pretty excited. Woohoo! And our guest today is Phoebe Stoner. Phoebe, welcome back to the Artemis Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Marsha, and I'm excited to be here with you and Sam. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And um, as I was kind of prepping for it, I was looking back to our previous podcast, which was uh, recorded almost exactly a year ago, April 2021. And it was called Saying Yes to Serving on a Board with Phoebe Stoner. So I feel like in this whole journey of uh, developing the leadership series that we did this past year and then this podcast series, uh, I feel a couple of things. One, that we've come full circle because I think mm -hmm. uh, the conversations that I've had with you were the impetus mm -hmm. for a lot of brainstorming um, and that I'm really excited to kind of go deeper into that first conversation we had and talk uh, a little bit more about uh, various topics. So thank you um, for yeah. your inspiration and for the conversation we're having today. Yes, definitely. Um, before we dig in, though, I want to know what seasons you are getting after this spring. Oh, that's a great question. So this spring has been filled with um, kind of just personal life stuff. Um, it's pretty exciting. I, I had a house um, in Laramie. I was in Wyoming for about seven years before moving back to the Northwest, and I was able to sell that house. Um, I just am under contract for a house here in Portland. Um, I moved in with my partner on top of that and then we're moving. And so we've been really, really busy. Um, I had a really exciting kind of winter fishing season. Um, yeah, I got into um, steelhead fishing, uh, which is just, I never thought that I'd be interested in it, but it is just prolific right here in the backyard. So got interested in that, got myself a gear rod, which was a whole, you know, different world. Um, and yeah, both my, my boyfriend and I successfully caught our first steelhead this year, which takes some people multiple years to do that. So we're really excited about that. That is super exciting. And Gosh, the idea of just having that in your backyard. 
has to be mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to um, getting more into salmon fishing too. And just the, the local um, kind of specialty here in the Northwest and the Western side of the Cascades, especially. Yeah. So mm-hmm. are you going after Turkey at all this spring? Um, this is the first spring in a while that I am sitting it out. Um, I, I had a lot of fun turkey hunting last year, but it was just a little busy. Um, this year I had a good friend who was successful for the first time though, um, which was really exciting. So, yeah, you know, I think, I feel like the hunting community, um, has gotten into the swing of big game season right and so I know at least my work mm-hmm. your work probably doesn't slow down very much but at least my work slows down in October November because everybody that I work with mm-hmm. is out hunting and I really wish mm-hmm. in some way that that would translate to the spring season but it I mean I know we right. have to work sometime but <laughs> <laughs> right 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 yeah but if, if we didn't uh, I would yes yeah go after a lot more in the springtime yeah. Well, there's always those months after fall hunting season and before spring that we can work, but those are steelhead, steelhead months now right? for me. So it's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. you just, we yeah. just need to like quit our jobs and live off the land. <laughs> yeah. That'll, and, that'll yeah. be the third, the third podcast. There you podcast go. Episode. <laughs> April, 2023. That's what I'm talking about. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. <Amazing. laughs> Uh, well, for our listeners who haven't listened to the first episode uh, podcast that we did with Phoebe, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it, and we will link to it in our show notes. Uh, but before we dive into the rest of our conversation today, can you give us just a brief reminder of who you are? Yeah. Um, so my name is Phoebe Stoner. Um, I am based in Portland, Oregon, um, here in the very green Pacific Northwest. Um, I went to college here about 10 years ago at Lewis and Clark College. I uh, graduated with a degree in biology, um, and then I moved to Wyoming for about seven years and thought I was going to do field ecology and got really invested in advocacy um, and politics. And so I kind of started getting involved um, in town and county level politics started working and volunteering on campaigns and, um, you know, getting involved with boards and things like that. And then that quickly shifted from a pastime um, and a volunteer uh, activity to kind of my professional life. Um, And so I I took a job and ran a nonprofit there for a while, um, served on Laramie City Council for uh, a year, um, and then I, I decided that I wanted to come back to the Northwest and shift out of advocacy as a profession, um, but still do it in my, uh, my free time. I air quotes around free time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Free time, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Air quotes around free time. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. You can't see it over, um, you know, the radio, but <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so one thing that um, 
and again, Phoebe, I'm, I'm always appreciative of your willingness to hop on the phone with me to think through things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yeah. one of the reasons that I um, wanted to have this conversation with you and, and share sort of some of the conversations that we've had privately mm-hmm. with our audience, because, um, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of different ways to be a good board member uh, and to be an effective board member. Uh, and mm-hmm. I... Uh, and then there are people like you, and I also think like Kathy Hadley, who mm-hmm. who she, you know, Kathy was on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about her interest in organizational culture um, and organizational mm-hmm. functioning, and so talking to board members um, about that type of focus and how it informs their work, and then talking to you about just the intention and. And mm-hmm. a, you know the intention and attention that you give to how you show up in the room as a board member, I think mm-hmm. is really. Um, I'm going to use the word intentional again, and just to be redundant and repetitive. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and these are things that you've thought very deeply about, uh, and mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that about you. And I'm looking forward to uh, to having this conversation. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So can you say a little bit about your intentionality in the room? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And this goes back to, I think, the first time we talked about um, just board leadership and involvement. And I think a a lot of my intention comes from maybe learning the hard way. Um, So I'm definitely not shy about the fact that when I when I left Wyoming, um, I felt like my life was a little out of balance with just work versus personal time and what I was occupied with and um, just kind of spending spending my life doing. Um, and so for me, when I when I relocated and kind of set out to put more focus on the balance, um, that is where I think a lot of my intention uh, was born from. So just wanting to be mindful about my own boundaries and what I actually have the capacity to do. Um, I think the other thing for me is like, I'm a conservationist, but I'm also interested in social justice. So I'm also interested in social justice and, um, you know, education issues and all types of issues that are important to me. And so really figuring out where do I want to spend my time? Um, I know when I worked at a nonprofit and from that perspective, sometimes that's the hardest challenge is figuring out where to spend your resource and what issues to take on and what issues to, you know, pass on. Um, and I feel like it was almost the same from my perspective. It's accepting that you can't change everything and you can't work on everything, but you can make a big impact on, you know, a a few things that are really important to you that you think you can offer value to. I really appreciate that. Do you feel like it's a level of maturity or like something that came with age as well as just like acknowledging, you know, to, prioritize things a little differently in your life? Yeah, I think so. I think it came with age and just trial and error, like trying things on and being like, no, that's too much. Or 
actually, I kind of missed that. Like, you know, I, I moved back and was just bartending and I didn't have any kind of engagements with anything. So I had a lot of time to think about, you know, what type of job do I want? And then also what type of engagement do I want in, in my community? And I think now that my job is not related to, like, I have a greater capacity to put towards nonprofit and conservation issues. I love that idea. I, you know, I'm rotating off a board myself actually this weekend after seven years of mm -hmm. service, like straight wow. through. And I went from, you know, insight to vice president to president to past board chair. Mm -hmm. And it just, wow, it kind of ate, ate my time. And, and yeah, to be able to go back now, because it was part of, it was my alumni association. I enjoyed it. We did. Oh, yeah. and it was great. But at the same time, mm -hmm. it was started to get, um, it just, it was draining. It was fulfilling, but draining at the same time. So I can understand mm -hmm. where you're coming from. Yeah, right. And it's funny. I have a really good friend who told me before I got involved with advocacy that if you can't advocate for yourself, then how Oof. can you advocate for anything or anyone else? And Damn. I think, yeah, I know. I think that's like remained central in, in my mind too in the past few years is like, I have to be right with myself and I have to be coming from a good place where I have capacity and fresh energy to give um, because, you know, that comes through wherever you are at personally. That's so true. And I appreciate the, it, there, I mean, they can approach that looks different for different people, right? For some, it's reminding themselves yeah. that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And so taking on what they can mm -hmm. chew and then, for others, it can be, I'm going to run this sprint and then I'm going to stop and then I'm going to run this sprint right. and then I'm going to stop. And, mm -hmm. um, and obviously it can be both of those for the same people over the course of a lifespan, but yeah, whatever, but there are options in, in figuring out what that looks like and how it works. Yeah, I, I totally think so. And I, I know from my experience too, especially when, you know, this was like my nine to five and my yeah. whatever comes after that like you you kind of feel this and I don't know if it's a gender thing or an age thing but I definitely felt like a pressure of like but if I don't do this then like it's not going to happen and like you know how will the dam be removed or what will happen with the forest boundary or, or whatever um and the reality of it is yeah what you said Marsha like it 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 often is not a sprint and it has to be about your contribution to it, but it can't hang on, on you as an individual and the responsibility oh, yeah. of it. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's key. Cause again, um, talking about habitat quality or, or a lot of these conservation issues that we're working towards, those are decades, those are generations mm -hmm. worth of work. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's like, where can you plug in and without taking on mm -hmm. the burden of success or failure? Right, right. The, the burden of that, that ultimate end goal. And that's something I think we touched on last time too, is just like in this work, how do we celebrate victories that aren't the big victories? Um, you know, are we celebrating the little things that happen, even if we didn't get the W on the campaign, 
you know, did we organize a bunch of people? Did we get new volunteers? Like whatever the case might be. Um, I really think counting those smaller victories is important for morale. Do you, have you read the research? Um, there's, there's research done that's, that says, uh, you hold on to the emotional benefit of a success and, and are more likely to repeat that action if you like celebrate it physically, whether, you know, like you pump your fist in the air and say yes, or you like, you know, high five yourself or do a little dance or something. Mm-hmm. If you like make the emotion and the celebration right. of that victory physical, then uh, it, it has stronger staying power. And so I advocate that we develop some sort of like um, touchdown dance <laughs> for yes. the small victories, not just the big victories. Yes. Yes, the goal celebration. Exactly. Mm-hmm. For for small goals as well as big goals. For, the, for small goals. Yeah. Yes. You know, for the, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to try and give sports metaphors and I really should not do that. So I will stop now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. The idea, though, too, to um, think a challenge is when you do the marathon approach to something and you don't have a clear thought pattern to why you're doing it it's so mm-hmm. hard to see the w- the wins unless you like step back and give yourself time to do that I'm kind of realizing mm-hmm. that just in my own life right now it's it's really hard to identify them unless unless you step back and say okay what's going on how do I evaluate mm-hmm. that do you have any tips mm-hmm. on how others can do that I think that's a good question I mean I think being it a lot of it for me is like the team that you're working on and because you know hardly ever is the work happening in in a silo and so um developing like I remember when we would develop campaign plans in my in my past life and it's like all right here's the goals for the campaign but here are like the other organizational goals and um that we hope to achieve even if we don't win the issue um so actually like writing those down and then, you know, during the debrief or, or whatever, identifying when, when you've met those. Um, but going back to like culture of organization, like you were talking about, Marsha, I feel like that, you know, definitely comes from a lot of times within the organization and whether that's kind of part of the culture or not. It's so interesting, too, because it feels a lot like... Um the process needs to be in place in addition to the culture being in place. Because I think a lot of times organizations uh, get stuck in reactivity mode and lose Mm -hmm. uh, the ability to stay in that strategic mode. And so those small Mm -hmm. victories go unnoticed because they weren't planned or marked. Right. Or acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah. It's like so much, so much joy that we are uh holding ourselves back from Mm -hmm. yeah it's like if you don't know where the half mile mark then you can't celebrate it when you cross it so figure out where the half mile mark is and then when you finish the marathon I mean if I were to run a marathon I would celebrate every half mile so that yeah totally Mm -hmm. so interesting you know maybe that's that's connected to how people can overcome imposter syndrome too if they, mm. if they really look back and strategically identify some of the wins. We've been talking a lot about that on this podcast and how people yeah. of all success levels feel that. But mm-hmm. it does seem like, just taking back to Winnie and Kristen, they could list successes. They could state like yeah. where they had achieved something. Maybe that'll help people to overcome that. I, I like that mm-hmm. a lot because it, 
again, we had a conversation about how like imposter syndrome just is those imposter thoughts don't go away and that's okay. Right. It, what matters is Mm -hmm. like how you work with them and how you react Mm. when you have them. Um, and Mm -hmm. I think you're right, Sam. I think if there, if you have those, uh, marks of success, then you at least have like talking points to talk yourself through uh, a reaction when you're having it. Right. Like, no, but look, you did this, you did that, you did this. Right. It makes it more quantitative. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which we could spiral our qualitative personal feedback into a deep, dark hole. Um, (laughs) But, but it's harder to spiral quantitative results. I think that's personally. I want to also talk about uh, a few specific points of how you personally show up in a board of directors or in a decision-making body. Because one thing that you had talked about that really resonated with me was storytelling as a communication strategy. And Mm -hmm. Artemis talks about that a lot when we're uh, talking to decision-makers or um, community leaders, but for some reason, or like at a community hearing, just incorporating your personal story to, mm-hmm. um, to, to emphasize a point of why this matters to you. But I hadn't translated it into that conversation of colleagues in a boardroom. And I'm really intrigued by the idea and would love to hear more about it. Yeah. So I, um, I think narrative is one of the most powerful tools of advocacy, but also just of being. Um, And it was definitely the foundation of my learning about community organizing and and my own advocacy journey is just start with your story. Um, I always remember when I was learning about that, it's like the idea is that we, as humans, we think in stories and have you know, recorded history through stories and um, songs and and things like that um, are all based around stories. And even when we're sitting around thinking about our day, like, oh, I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to do this, like, it's all a story in your head. And so tapping into the nature of that and showing what your values are rather than stating what they are, um, I just think that's so powerful, especially in a situation where there is a lot of diversity um, or (laughs) I should say there isn't a lot of diversity. Um, So for example, I'm uh, the co-president of the Northwest Steelheaders, which is the National Wildlife uh, Federation affiliate in in Oregon. Um, And I am the only woman and perhaps the only person under 55 um, on the board and, you know, it's acknowledged, but when I kind of walk into those scenarios, it's not lost on me that I am the odd woman out, I suppose. (laughs) Um, and just connecting with those people that I, my colleagues that I need to, despite, you know, being from different places and growing up in different time periods, um, you know, fishing stories is a great way to connect and and build a relationship with them. Can you, is there, when you, hmm, um, okay, it's a two-parter. Do you take that beyond the normal storytelling that happens as you're building relationships? 
do you know what I mean? Does that question make sense? That's the first part. Um, because I think there are like, uh, the conversations that happen, um, Mm -hmm. in the, in the small talk that, that occurs when Mm -hmm. we're with a group of people, um, that really does Mm -hmm. deepen that understanding and build those relationships that make our work together, uh, easier Mm -hmm. when we see each other as people. Um, Right. When you talk about uh, using storytelling as a way to show values um, and mm-hmm. instead of telling values, uh, are mm. you are you taking it a step further than mm-hmm. that relationship yeah. building? Yeah, I think they are kind of two two different um, versions of the same root, I suppose. Um, so one would be kind of just yeah chatting, building relationships and, and building rapport with people. Um, and then the other piece of it would be, you know, instead of facts and figures, talking through narratives. This is going to be a weird question. I feel free to say no, but could mm-hmm. you give an example? Um, gosh, I have to think about that. Yeah. So an example of like talking through uh, like the first part or the second part, like, uh, the advocacy piece. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dealer's choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I remember when I was first, um, first getting involved with advocacy, um, I got involved with an organization called the Jackson Hole Conservation Alliance, um, in Teton County, And one of our main concerns and still is a concern there is just workforce housing. So um, the folks that live in the community and serve the community, do they have a place to to work and to be there? Um, And so, you know, when we learned about how to present at these committee meetings, it's really not about proving the point through like, well, this is the percentage of people that are unhoused and this is the percentage of people that commute. Um, Those percentages matter. And, you know, as a science-based person, like I could look at those data all day, but getting up and talking about me and my personal housing journey and the people around me who have had trouble finding, you know, a roof over their head or safe housing, um, or healthy housing, uh, those stories are going to resonate with people so much more than just talking about percentages or, or data trends. And it's so interesting. I can see in, in the midst of a board meeting, Mm -hmm. how, yeah, I'd I'd separated those two in my mind and they're not Mm -hmm. separate. I mean, trying to talk, trying to convey an opinion mm-hmm. to somebody um, mm-hmm. is, through story is done the same way, regardless of the setting that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like going back to talking about qualitative versus quantitative. Like yeah. I think that when we do, we have, you know, discussions, there is a tendency to want to prove the point through, you know, showing the equation or showing the numbers. Um, But it's just not how humans are wired, even if we think we are. Um, At the end of the day, like telling a story that articulates those numbers um, 
through qualitative means is a lot will resonate with people emotionally a lot more, um, even if they might not realize it. Yeah. No, you're right. Because I, I, um, I guess I'm having one of those moments where it's like I can't believe I didn't have this thought before, but um, <laughs> the, it's um, uh, the. When Alexis Bonagowski, um, who was one of the mm-hmm. co-founders of Artemis, pulled together mm-hmm. our initial advocacy training platform, a part of it included storytelling, like I mentioned earlier. And uh, when she would teach it, she would say, um, when is the last time you changed your mind? And really strike up mm-hmm. a conversation about that with the people who are in attendance. And and. It's it's interesting to consider that people very, very rarely change their mind mm-hmm. with facts. They change their mind right. when they're moved emotionally. And obviously, you can't have – like, there needs to be both. Um, in order to make mm-hmm. a strong and compelling statement, you need to have both. Mm-hmm. But people change their minds when they're moved. And stories right. are, are what move us. And I, I think mm-hmm. I'd had sequestered that – concept to communicating publicly with decision makers instead of Mm -hmm. bringing it into a more intimate setting uh, and communicating that way with a working group and using my personal story in in Mm -hmm. an explanation of my decision right yeah and it definitely works both ways yeah yes absolutely Mm -hmm. I think it takes a little bit of like vulnerability too, because especially if we're like around other people that are just talking quantitatively, it can feel weird to step up and just start saying, you know, mm-hmm. 10 years ago when I was hiking, <laughs> people here, people are like, oh, um, but I, I do really think that, yeah, it's just the way humans are wired to, to think through, through narrative. Yeah, um, I did have another really good example, too, Great. that I just thought of. Um, so I drive around a bit for my job. And a few months back, I, I also bring my wire-haired Vishla gizmo just about everywhere I go. Yay. Um, she's my she's my guardian angel. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times we'll get to stop and go to the local dog, dog park, wherever we might be traveling. Um, and I was in a pretty rural area of Oregon, got her out and she was running around and there was this local guy there and we got to talking, chit chatting, if you will. (laughs) And it was clear that we probably don't vote the same. Um, we probably had differing opinions politically just based on what he was saying, but I, you know, wasn't, I was just there listening. And then there was this moment where he started talking about how the woods have changed because he cuts timber and he was noticing these changes in his environment. And I just totally keyed into that. And I was like, yes, like, tell me how the woods have changed because that is the connection. Like that's the story. It's not him hearing the word climate change or seeing the facts and figures. It's the emotional experience of, this forest isn't the same as it as it was when I was a boy and that is something that we can talk about yeah it almost feels like cutting through all the bs to get down to Mm -hmm. 
what matters and that's his experience with that landscape. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's connections there too, that I think can be forged yeah. despite other differences. So, mm-hmm. Sam, I'm curious what you think of, of using that storytelling in a more intimate decision-making setting, what your experience is with that. So like you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm listening because like on the tip of my tongue, I can think of examples too where storytelling has helped, but it's two parts. Well, first of all, the culture and hunting revolves around storytelling. I mean, it's like the number one thing people do. Mm-hmm. You go out and then you tell people about what you do when you go out. Right. And so when it comes to advocacy within conservation, I feel like with all the DEI conversations and shifting generations and shifting priorities and demands on conservation managers, Mm-hmm. That's a tool that we probably underutilize and there is chances to get strategic about it because mm-hmm. like for Sunday hunting, it was a big issue in Pennsylvania we have three days, and, you know, we can always try for more, but, um, what, when it really got, you know, supported was when like a college kid said, well, I drove home Saturday, but I had to be back to school on Monday to go to mm-hmm. take classes. Right. Or mm-hmm. like when a, a dad said, my son finally got his first turkey because soccer wasn't on Sunday. It was just Saturday, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, those stories helped deliver a point effectively. And, and mm-hmm. people can find common ground in that manner. And then the mm-hmm. second point I was just thinking about is, like, we are so good at research. And you said quantitative and qualitative. Both are, are research types, right? But mm-hmm. outside the professionals in this space, like nobody sits down and reads a 50 page paper for fun um, yeah. so <laughs> delivering <laughs> delivering key facts like um there was a great article that was made into a blog post with story related um a story related approach to talk about how deer management will probably change in the future but again mm-hmm. there's like a peer-reviewed literature cited uh, paper but no, nobody in the general public is just gonna be like got this in my whiskey time to read it so <laughs> I think on the conservation topic there's like a chance to convey um facts and, and points important points too like on cwd perhaps or lyme disease like key issues for mm. us through yeah. storytelling and maybe it's being underutilized right now i don't know yeah my mind spinning that's, that's where am, i'm going <laughs> yeah i am curious though and i want to dig in a little bit because Phoebe, you already mentioned this, like it, it, it's vulnerable, right? And I think it's also mm-hmm. against the culture a, a lot yeah. of times, um, mm-hmm. particularly in a professional space. Um, mm-hmm. And so you are breaking the norm. Um, and always, if- Marsha. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, I think that's part of why it feels uh, um, surprising is that it, it's breaking mm-hmm. the norm. And it's if you're already in that space experiencing a little bit of imposter syndrome, breaking the norm is a risk. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, right. a, you know, I think this this makes sense to me. And so it's definitely feels like a risk worth taking. But I can imagine mm-hmm. it being incredibly uncomfortable to begin with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I owe a lot of my confidence with it just to the fact that I was trained to do it. Um, I did the uh, Conservation Leadership Institute, and it was a really big part of it is just 
practice, practice in a safe, you know, space with the other participants, practice some more, try a different story. Um, and it, it became kind of the blueprint of how I saw advocacy. So I think I was just lucky in how I got taught and kind of carrying it along with me. But I absolutely think that's true. I mean, I can think of examples when I was like testifying at town or county meetings and everyone that went before me was talking about numbers. And then I stood up and started talking about, you know, where I grew up and you, there's certainly a moment where you're like, oh man, I really hope they're not just wondering what the heck I'm talking about. (laughs) But I, I, I trusted, I think just because I have seen it work and I do think that once you kind of start making those connections, people forget about all that and they just start listening to the story. Do you listen to the Moth podcast? Uh, I have before, yeah. I, I'll see, gosh, this was probably like no joke like a decade ago, um, but mm-hmm. I will see if I can find it because they have this really great um, episode about how to tell a good story. Ooh, um, yeah, that uh, that is just been on my mind throughout this conversation. Sam, were you going to mm-hmm. say something? I was, and I think I think I was trained. Apologies, Jack's in the background and not happy. Um, and I, we can hear your I fire. Is trained. your fire crackling? Because we can hear it, and it's lovely. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was bad. Yeah. So um, I think storytelling for me. I mean, so I did do leadership development at, in like the Governor's Youth Advisory Council in Pennsylvania at age like 15. And then we, I went to American Women's Leadership School at age 16. So it's quite possible. And I know there were sessions about storytelling, but I kind of feel like I adapted it too, because it was my way of immediately est- establishing my credibility or my street cred with like, here's my latest hunting story, right? right. Or here's my latest struggle. And, and that's in, in a couple different ways, because like, you know, I have my set of stories I share with certain audiences, but then mm-hmm. when I, I want to share more vulnerable stories with people, like, let's say I had to pee in the woods, like just as a silly example, but like at the same time, like that, depending on the audience has helped me to establish credibility, but also make myself feel comfortable. Cause like, right. I feel like maybe I'm a little nervous in a room. So <laughs> by sharing stories and getting other people to talk and share complimentary stories, I ease my own um, mm-hmm. edge, and I, and yeah. I feel more comfortable and in a more safe space for myself. So I think it, I don't think it's a defense mechanism necessarily, but like it is a learned trait for sure. Mm-hmm. At least in, in this one a- aspect of it, I use it to tell stories to convince viewpoints too. But specifically as a sportswoman and, and just building confidence in the arena, that's that's mm-hmm. my I think my learned trait. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it. I think it takes vulnerability and it definitely takes courage to be vulnerable. But it sounds like what you're saying is the flip side of that is that having that courage can also be confidence building. For sure. And it's a display of it, too. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Slight imposter syndrome right at the start. But like me and why am I here? Or we had a leadership call last night and it was a girl. I just listened to her. I'm just like uh, amazed by her and listening to her story. I'm like, oh, I felt that way before. Right. And mm-hmm. I think when I go into a room doing that quick 
introduction or, or this is who I am mm-hmm. helps, helps mm-hmm. me get over that immediate imposter syndrome, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I like that idea. It's like using that introduction as a way to remind yourself who you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, this seems like a, a good point to take a quick break to hear from our partners, and we'll be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. For 125 years, Rio has made shot shells for hunting, sport, and defense using their own premium components. Top shooters like three-gunner Rihanna Kadic, champion clay shooter Tina Jewell, and outdoors woman Taylor Garcia trust Rio to give them the edge on the range and in the field. A full line of target loads like Star Team Evo, hunting cartridges like the popular Texas game load, plus an array of buck and slugs. Now Rio is proud to introduce their pro-eco biodegradable wad to help keep plastics out of the environment. Visit RioAmmo.com for a complete line of 12 and sub-gauge products for your favorite game. That's R-I-O-A-M-M-O.com. Okay, welcome back. Uh, one of our partners, um, Phoebe, I, I know that you are an upland hunter. Um, and so I, am. <laughs> I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about one of our sponsors for this podcast is Rio Ammo. And they have a biodegradable wad, which I think is super cool. Have you <sighs> heard of oh, that man. before? I haven't, but I am very excited to hear about that. Yeah, I've. they sent me some samples, so I will send them your way. <laughs> I don't know oh my gosh, yeah. thank you. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but back to leadership, I, um, I, I, I'm I, recognizing that we're bumping up on our hour, which feels ridiculous because I blinked and suddenly uh, <laughs> the conversation is coming to a close. Is there anything you wanted to mention that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I think the other thing just worth touching about, especially um, with just where I am right now, um, in my volunteer advocacy, um, something I'm really interested in is just mentorship, um, and how I hope that diversity begets more diversity. Um, but sometimes getting over that first hump is really hard. And so I'm noticing it like, you know, my, my, the co-president on the board that I'm on, He's not shy about it. He says that the the rest of the organization is stale, male, and pale. Um, and it's I, I don't disagree with him. Um, and there's this known acknowledgement, like in a lot of conservation groups right now, that we need to invite and attract the next generation to engage um, or a different generation. Um, and so I'm really excited to be participating, but already as like the only person representing that younger generation, I'm already, you know, looking around being like, how do we get more people 
Um, so it's interesting to me um, because like thinking about goals, like I was really excited to get on the board and to try to make an impact. But now that I'm there, I'm like, man, now my number one goal is how do I get other people who are in similar shoes as me on the board too? So I think that's just like a, an area that I look for where I think like resources and support could really go a long way. The actual mentorship um, of when you're on the board or, or, or when you're trying to expand it even more. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been on a board uh, that had sort of that built in? I mean, cause we talk about um, uh, like, <laughs> I don't know why this example is coming to my mind because I never in my life was on a sorority. But you know how they have like big sisters and little sisters. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and yeah. the, like, is there uh, and then is there a f- like a? There, it seems like it would be beneficial if a board had that sort of structure where a new board member yes. was paired with a um, veteran yes. board member. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Um, And it could even be someone that used to be on the board or, you know, maybe someone that's on a different board, but could just help in navigating. um, Yeah. How, what you actually do when you're there. Cause I think there's a lot of emphasis on kind of how do you get there? Um, It's kind of the same as like, you know, serving an office. There's a lot of, a lot of support for let's get you elected. Let's get you in this training. But then when you're in the office, what do you do? Um, so I'm really interested in just that aspect of, of support and and mentorship and leadership development and getting more diverse boards in the conservation world. I love it. And Sam and I have been planning our, the next year of our leadership series and what that's going to look like, um, and hope, and with that type of mentorship and and support for women who are currently serving Mm -hmm. uh, is a definite Mm -hmm. priority. So I look forward to picking your brain again more on that. Phoebe, have you like, you're you're talking about the concept. Have you taken any steps forward down that path yet with the steelheaders as an example of how I haven't yet. Um, But I think part of like the first step for me is just the buy-in from the organization that that's actually something that needs to happen. And so that's definitely there. And I think I've just been working to kind of solidify that and to feel like there's support in the organization and awareness of it. Um, but it's pretty hard. I, cause I'm like, all right, how, how do I find and recruit a, a board member? <laughs> so, yeah. So, mm-hmm. So, so that's exactly what I've been trying to do. I actually, I, I called one mm-hmm. woman who's uh, been so active with backcountry honors and anglers in Pennsylvania, where I'm a board member of. I'm like, mm-hmm. when would you be ready to be a board member if we wanted to recruit you? And she so eloquently said, I'd like to think about it. And she just went through a, like a refined process. And I think she's still going through it right now. But because mm-hmm. of the work we're doing here, it's just been stimulating my brain to be like, okay, well, first of all, I can't do BHA forever, but I, when right. I leave and when the other one other woman leaves potentially, then we're back to square one and potentially right. no one advocating for it. They've been really great. Don't get me wrong, but like, it's a conscious mm-hmm. thing as, as we've all experienced. Yeah. And so, well, just a lot of my time now is just on like, okay, pathways. Where are they coming from? How are we building this? 
Um, are we, mm-hmm. do we have the right events? We're really looking at like family nights because all of our potential female board members are um, moms. Right. And so mm-hmm. we have family nights, that'll be more appropriate and welcoming to them. And how do mm-hmm. we do that? So that's mm-hmm. just been the pathway I've started down probably the last month and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you create an impact by having your voice on the board, but then there's this desire to create an even bigger impact by, you know, using your power to invite others to join. But that that last part, yeah, it's it's challenging to know where to start. Yeah, it, it's it's so interesting. Just to, it's challenging to know where to start, and it's also like the the endeavor of doing that is very effortful. It's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's it takes mm-hmm. a lot um, to, to to find the right person. Um, mm-hmm. You know, be transparent about this is not always going to be fun, but it's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And it's it, it's it's definitely a worthwhile effort, uh, but it is effortful. And I think um, mm-hmm. that's a, that's part of the problem is that finding board mm-hmm. members within a certain network can be easy. Finding board members outside of a certain network mm-hmm. is not easy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's all related to like the same route in my mind too. It's like, well, there would be more potential board members if there were more yep. women or other folks that felt invited to go fishing and were interested in fishing. And so then how do we get more women involved in fishing and hunting? And, you know, it's like, it's all kind of related to the same root issue. Yeah. Yeah. We need to fish in a bigger pond. Yeah, exactly. Um, Phoebe, thank you so much for your time and for your conversation. It was delightful. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, uh, Sam and Marsha, and I look forward to the next time. Yes, uh, and there will be next time. Mark it on your calendar, April 2023. (laughs) All right, I will. All right. I can't wait. Uh, To our listeners, thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you're having a good one. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Mm